Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez. Hey everybody, Joe here. So for the first of our interviews around this new series of five questions, we're going to start with a co-host of this podcast, Mike McKinnon himself. I've known Mike for over a decade. I remember where I was in my condo looking at my very old iMac computer at the time and we were interacting on nurse-anesthesia.org and he let me know that CRNAs did in fact practice independently all across the nation and it really changed my understanding of the profession and what the, the value we could bring to communities. He's a leader, and leaders invariably, uh, when you're doing something different, right, you often get criticized, and that criticism needs to be answered. So in this interview, I gave Mike the opportunity to answer some of those criticisms. And I also asked him, what are the things he's learned as a leader that are different from the time we met, you know, five and over the past uh, 10 years? Right to now, what are the things he's learned? So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. So welcome back to Anesthesia Deconstructed, everybody. Uh, as you know, uh, we are starting this five questions series with the founder of this podcast, Mike McKinnon, who really needs no introduction. But Mike, uh, obviously, thanks for being on. Thanks for setting up the podcast to start with. You have been, you were Arizona's president for two years, right? You are a, what I call the managing partner uh, in the group in Arizona. You're now on the ANA board of directors for years. You serve as the ANA task force chairman and have consulted all over the country. I guess the main question I have for you uh, as your friend and colleague is why do you do all this stuff? Like what is driving you to do so much of this work, which for those listening is essentially all volunteer. Right. So this is all volunteer work for you. There's some stipends here and there, but the vast, vast majority of it is volunteer work. Why do you do it? Well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I'd start off with what my dad used to say, which is if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Uh, and that everyone has 24 hours in a day. It's just how, how you allot it and use it. So for me, um, advocacy is a serial thing in my career. So I was involved to a lot lesser degree when I was a flight RN um, in advocacy. I lectured at national conferences then for the Flight Nurse Association, mm. uh, but not nearly as busy or involved as I am today with the anesthesia. And I attribute that to kind of understanding that, you know, you stand on the shoulders of giants and but for them, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so someone has to continue to move that ball forward and protect what we have and, uh, and, and be involved and do things that advance the profession and the career. And so, you know, I would attribute probably the primary reason why I'm as involved as I am to a past ANA president that I shadowed named Jaminino. So I went to shadow her when I was learning about CRNAs. I uh, hadn't known what they were because, you know, best kept secret in healthcare, hiding in the OR. Uh, and I had worked mm -hmm. in a helicopter. So 
wasn't seeing them very often. I didn't know they existed. And so I discovered it on the internet, basically. And she offered to have me come shadow her. And her and another past president, Linda Callahan, uh, came, uh, invited me to their home, or well, to mm. Jan's home, invited us to stay there overnight as well while I was there shadowing her in the OR. And the two of them sat down at dinner with me and explained the entire history of the profession and all the battles and all the advocacy wars and, you know, all the things to get uh, direct reimbursement, just how much work it was over time. And basically um, just to rekindle that understanding and drive to have, to be a good professional citizen. In in nurse anesthesia and anesthesiology, and so you know a large part of that's advocacy, and so that's why I got involved. And I don't want anyone else to be my boss, so that's why I'm a managing partner in a company. And uh, you know, I just want to move the ball forward for everybody because ultimately, that helps us all. When I hear that, I think you know it sounds like you're a pretty driven individual, generally speaking, but maybe not. You know, you weren't to this level. Uh, and I'm not sure if you were in a different environment, if you would be the same. But uh, anesthesia, you know, there's so much overlap between the profession. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of competition. Obviously, you know, there's forces within the ASA who would see CRNAs not exist. I think that's fair to say. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like it was kind of a marriage of you know, environment and individual personality and just brought it out of you. Is that do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think I have a natural tendency to want to be involved. I don't like to do things that I can't be really good at. Um, I like, I don't like to, to sit in the background while others make decisions for me or for my future. I, I've always been taught by my father, and that's who I would attribute that entirely to, is that, you know, you have to be the, the person who writes your story. And that means being involved and doing the work up front and throughout to maintain it. Now, the the side benefit of that is that you also help everyone else along the way. And that becomes sort of the bigger, broader goal because, you know, once you achieve where you want to be in your career, where I feel like I'm there now uh, and have been for a couple of years, now I want to give back a little bit more. Hence the reason why I decided to uh, run for the ANA board position. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You said... You know, that's why I'm the managing partner or a manager, whatever the title is you guys use locally. A lot of people hear that and uh, they really, they think when you're running your own shop, there's no accountability, right? But in, it seems like, I mean, rather than reporting up to another anesthesia professional or even though you might be reporting up to a board, right? Rather than your traditional employment relationship, who are you accountable now to, right? And I'm asking knowing it's, you know, you're accountable to your contract holder. Could you contrast those two things? Because I don't want people to hear that and think, well, I'm my own boss, so I'm not accountable to anyone. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I mean, you're besides being accountable to your contract owners, you're accountable to the members in your organization. So, you know, all the people who come to work for us uh, are all, uh, you know, independent contractors that work for our company and provide anesthesia through contracts that we've worked for. Ultimately, we are accountable to you know three three groups we're accountable to them because they've put the trust in us to maintain foster and grow you know these contracts where they work because you know all of our contracts are in places where there's not like a place down the road where you can go work so they're taking a risk to move to a small rural area and uh and and be there live there with no other alternative if things were to go badly at our contract so we're accountable to them uh certainly 
uh, as equally as we are accountable to our contract holders. Uh, and so obviously you're accountable to the contract holders, which which subdivides into administration and surgeons, right? So you got the administration mm-hmm. who, as long as you meet the what it says in the contract, they're happy. As long as, you know, if you're asking for a subsidy, the subsidy is reasonable, they're happy. As long as the services they want uh, and you can provide it, they're happy. Uh, and ultimately, they don't really care as much about the details. They care that the surgeons are happy. So your mm-hmm. primary stakeholder is is ultimately the surgeons because that's the economic engine of the hospital, the operating room. And so, you know, you're trying to always meet the surgeon's needs. And that's part of anesthesia I think some people struggle with, right? The the service nature of anesthesia. So when I say things like, yeah, you know, I want to be my own boss, what I want is to be involved in those conversations with those stakeholders. I want to be involved in structuring how we uh, create performance metrics. I want to be involved in structuring how we develop the service and, you know, making it equitable. I, I, a lot of people would not enjoy some of these things, but I know you and I both do. Uh, and, you know, even if it gets super frustrating because there's competing interests, right? Everyone wants to make as much money as they possibly can, do as little work as they can. And everyone wants you to provide all the service that they want, but pay nothing for it. I mean, th- those are the competing <laughs> interests right there. And so and that's that's just how it is, right? That's human nature. And that's that's good business, really, on either side. Absolutely. So that's the win-win. I have to do. That's the win-win, right. right? So we stand as managing partners, as the mediators between those groups to find what I would what I would term as the solution where everybody gets a little bit of what they want, but no one gets everything that they want, but everyone's happy. And um, I enjoy those positions. I enjoy sitting in the boardroom at the hospital and having these conversations with the mm-hmm. administrative team. I, I like having the conversations with the surgeons about, you know, what new things we can do or what new service lines they want to bring or, you know, how we can make things happen that they want. I like that. There's something about it that's um, ultimately rewarding. And especially things like that in a small rural community where if the surgeons didn't provide the service, it just wouldn't be here. So, you know, there's, you know, as opposed to working, say, in a big city, you know, I see my patients at Walmart, (laughs) you know, I mean, everywhere you go, it's a small town, everywhere you go, you're going to see people who you've taken care of. And so you are accountable. The third, uh, you know, corner of the triangle of accountability is to the patients, right? Mm -hmm. So in a different way than you're accountable in a big city, because you're going to see, you know, Bobby Joe that you put to sleep last week for a lap coley who didn't have any nausea uh, and has every other time at the local restaurant next week. And so that small community nature can really impact your business. It's like Yelp on a smaller scale. And you know, the people who are, who are telling the stories. So, you know, you're accountable, of course, to them, not just for good service and, but good outcomes. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's a great answer. It's a nuanced answer. It's uh, and that's why I wanted to have you on first for the series because I knew you would give those quality answers. So you've been around a long time, like we said earlier. You're nationally known within the industry. I think that's very fair to say. And uh, I think sometimes there's a caricature of you, though, in terms of being brash, having a big personality, right? Especially from you know, you, know, you, you and I are both getting older, right? Especially when we were younger. 
right? And it's a little, we have a little more energy for those types of things. But what would you say to your critics, especially those uh, kind of internet warriors on places like Reddit <laughs> or, or SDN, places where people new to the business are coming in and they see your name and it's associated with being against physicians in some way, being anti-physician, anti-physician anesthesiologists. What do you say to your critics who say you are anti-physician? Well, I, I think what I would say is I'm not anti-anybody, uh, but I am unapologetically pro-CRNA. So I look at the I look at this as a market, a market discussion, and I look at it as a, a competitive nat- natural market, which is what it is. That's the nature of anesthesiology. It's we are not um, socializing yeah, all services. Canada, so. All services, the whole service sector yeah. economy. Yes, exactly. It yeah. all of it, all of it, all it is is a basic market 101 uh, competitive nature market. And that's what we are in. And our competitors are physician anesthesiologists. That doesn't make them bad. That just makes them competitors. And so on an individual level, I would have no problem hiring physician anesthesiologists. Some of my best friends and mentors are physician anesthesiologists. So for, on a personal level, no, I have nothing negative to say. I think they get excellent training. I think they generally do a good job. And I think that, um, you know, uh, the vast majority that I've interacted with have been great people, just like CRNAs, right? And then there's bad apples on either side. Um, what I would say is that I am I am definitely against uh, wasting money in a healthcare system that has significant downward economic pressure and will continue to have that pressure. In fact, it's ramped up in the anesthesia world in the last three years with with the astronomical Certainly. increase in salaries. So we are heading. We are heading toward a a why in the road here for anesthesia services. And, you know, the truth is we need to use everyone to their maximum capacity who's capable of working to their maximum capacity, regardless of their initials. That's it. And if if there if a physician anesthesiologist is supervising four people and not performing anesthesia, then what we've done is eliminate an excellent provider out of the pool of providing anesthesia. We've closed the room in order to have someone watch four people, four CRNAs perform their job. And that, to me, is economically unfeasible into the future. Let me dive into that example specifically. You know, that, you know, you and I both trained back east. There's a lot of care team models back there. Sure. Uh, Again, for, for those listening, care team being defined as people who follow, not that all I don't think care team, we often say the team model, right? But team is super broad. This is specific type of team where some of the team members are limited by Chepard guidelines. Some of those people have been doing that for 5, 10, 15 years. That's the culture, right? Everyone is used to that. Even the physicians are used to that, right? They don't necessarily want to be in the room doing their own cases all the time. What do you say? To, so if that group comes to you and says, hey, we want to make some changes, it can't all be overnight. What do you say to them to say, well, here's your first step, right? You're not all going to become, right? Because those professionals, if they're 10, 15 years in those areas, they're going to have a challenge going to your practice, right? Yeah. So what do you say to them? That what's the first step in getting more value and in, in becoming a more full service practitioner or a more full service department? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that like all culture changes, nothing can happen quickly. Um, there's going to be, resistance from both physicians to have to go and sit the stool, something that they may have not done in a decade plus or are not interested in. And from CRNAs 
who don't necessarily, they're going to be CRNAs out there who don't know how to do blocks. Maybe they don't know because they don't do them in that practice. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're uncomfortable working by themselves. It's going to be a struggle for them too. So it takes time to change that. And the first step is mutual respect, right? So you can't create a culture change if you continue a subservient culture. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, the nature of this one to four medical direction is not a team. It is a dictatorship, unfortunately. And that's not every physician and it's not every CRNA that feels that way. But there's enough of it that people get a very bad taste in their mouth for those practices where someone mm-hmm. maybe, maybe if, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's nothing about professions, but maybe the physician anesthesiologist says, well, I don't like to use suck that my patients only rock, but the CRNA is the one doing the case. Mm-hmm. So they force them to then utilize the drug that they are comfortable with or the technique that they are comfortable with. Well, I don't like to do deep extubations and, you know, in parentheses, mm-hmm. because I've never done them. So we're going to wake everyone up today, except for the CRNA is going to be the one doing that work. Mutual respect in a real team environment means not enforcing your views and opinions and practices upon another, but having a discussion and giving people practice freedom to have job satisfaction. People are not going to stay in an environment where they feel like they're being dictated to constantly. Now, that's not every anesthesia care team. That's not every physician anesthesiologist, but it can only happen in that practice model, right? Because it's the only practice model where one person has what arguably is direct control over another. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that that starts with mutual respect, which is going to take a long time, a a change in how the perceived nature of the relationship is both from the CRNA to the physician side, from the physician to the CRNA side that, Hey, we train differently. We have, we, we have different uh, ideas and how, uh, an anesthetic should be done, but we are going to collaborate, not dictate, collaborate to come up with the best plan we both agree on and we both feel respected with equal decision-making in that process. You have yeah, to start that's there. A, that's a good distinguishing factor, right? Moving from a culture of control to a culture of consensus and maybe I would add growth, right? Because if you're, Absolutely. You know, if you're a CRNA who's you know only doing a very limited amount of cases and you're and your department, you know, puts a hurdle in front of saying you can't learn X procedure or X technique. And, but, you know, there's thousands of CRNAs across the country that do like that's that's not a good that's not how you're getting maximum value. Uh, right. So, yeah, that's, so yeah. my first start is there. You can't achieve anything else without that. Mm-hmm. And that means that's going to mean eliminating people. Um, you know, so part of that process is going to be getting rid of physicians who will not will not, you know, engage in that kind of uh, culture change and getting rid of CRNAs who also will not engage in that culture change. Mm-hmm. That's what it's going to mean. So that's, it's going to be some hurting initially to make the change. From there, you've got to bring everybody up. The physicians who are not comfortable maybe being in the OR, you've got to give them some time, you know, to get back into it. And they will they'll be fine. You know, you just got to give them some time for the CRNAs who were never allowed to do blocks. You got to support them uh, to be taught to do blocks so that you can get ultimately maximum value out of the service you're providing, eliminate the initials, right? Maximum value for the service you're providing means all providers working to the top of their capability 
uh, and licensure. That it doesn't mean restricting someone saying, oh, you can't do blocks. Oh, you can't push your induction drugs. Oh, you can't do a central line. Oh, you can't do epidurals here. No, all that has to be eliminated. You do everything here and we're going to build you up as opposed to tear you down and minimize you um, and make you that person. And when you do that with people, the added benefit is loyalty, right? Those people feel appreciated and want to stay. And yep. that is ultimately how you become successful in that transition. Without, without the starting of mutual respect and what really is collaboration, not, not dictatorship, um, you'll get that. And when you mentioned the internet stuff, the social media stuff, mm-hmm. that's the problem on social media, right? You will see those two subsets of people on social media all the time. The people who say, well, I would never let a CRNA do a block. I would never let a CRNA put someone asleep by themselves. I would never, I would never. Well, they will never succeed in this profession ultimately yeah. or at least not uh at least not to what they could have been right because no, exactly. I, you and i both know certain physician anesthesiologists who've been you know really you know elevated and highlighted and beloved by the cma yep. uh community not you know because the the skills necessary like i mean the practice was the practice was but you know that individual is who built into others and that's not even a, that's not a physician thing that's just a leadership thing. So that's yeah. a good segue. Yeah. Uh, you've been a leader for a long time, right? And you've uh, done a lot of different things over that time. What is the most important thing you have, not the most important lesson, what's the most important thing that you have changed as a result of your experiences over the past, say, five years? What's something that you did 10 years ago, uh, around the time we met, that you strongly believed in, that now you realize, you know what, I've changed the way I operate? Specifically in regards well, to I, I you know, I, I would say that it's um it's never enough to, is learning is a lesson that it's not as it's it, it's not enough just to be right. It is equally important how you deliver the message. And for me, as a as a guy being raised by a dad who used to say, uh, don't sugarcoat shit and, and call it candy and feed it to people. Right. Just be honest and be straightforward and clearly tell them what you mean. And then everyone will always know where you stand. Right. That makes perfect sense. Uh, In in personal interactions, I think it works great. In business and in advocacy and in professional interactions, it falls down when you're trying to, to explain something to someone that they initially are going to be absolutely defensive against. You just can't hammer it in there. You have to have you have to be able to deliver the message in a way that people can accept it because you can be right all day long, but if people feel defensive automatically and and angry about how you said it to them or feel like they've been, I don't know, personally attacked in some way, Mm. I think that ultimately those people will not accept any of what you said. And so I started off like a, uh, I'd say like a sledgehammer to a finishing nail on this stuff. Uh, because that's just how I was raised. And I've learned over the years to get closer to becoming, you know, a, a, a smaller hammer, I guess. You know, it, maybe, it, maybe a more work, focused hammer is... Uh, a more focused, lighter hitting, maybe translational hammer. <laughs> that's the way. Yeah. So I, I think that that, if I had to pick one thing that has really allowed me to to gain more, you know, 
support's not the right word, but to get people more involved and to get people more on board with making change that is needed, it has been that, you know, to try as hard as you can to see the world through the lens of the person you're having the conversation with. Uh, and, you know, I attribute a lot of that to friends like you and others around me who, you know, for you, that kind of comes naturally, I think. For me, I have to work at it. Um, but also to books like Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, Crucial Conversations, where I can read about myself in there and go, mm-hmm. oh, that's me, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. and you really see that this is just a personality type. And you can change it by recognizing it. So that will be, I think, the primary thing, because I would initially go at it like, oh, you know, these anesthesia care teams, this is craziness, what a waste of money. Uh, you know, these physicians are lazy, but that's not really true. None of those things are totally accurate. What it really is, it's not a good utilization of resources. And both resources are important, necessary, and needed in the anesthesiology world. So I, I you know, While I had the same ideas, I wasn't presenting them in the right way because I was saying it in an aggressive way and it was taken that way. So, you know, it just takes, I guess, insight over time and age to see that because at first you don't. And I think, you know, someone who's seen you over that time, uh, the quality of the message has not changed, but the delivery is not a distraction. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. that's. As you, we've we've both learned, I think we've both grown in this area about psychological safety, right? If once that's triggered yeah. in someone's brain, they stop listening, right? And I think it sounds like, and I would agree with your uh, your sentiment. So this this series is called Five Questions. So two more questions for you. The first is, can you tell me, uh, you know, there's a lot of CRNAs who are very uninterested, right? They're busy with their own lives. Uh, can you tell me for those people? Uh, why does the scope of practice stuff matter? Connect the dot between, you know, SB 1336 in Arizona and actual value in their individual life, taking care of their family. Yeah, that's, you know, I think that's the ultimate question, right? Uh, How do you get people to want to care about their profession? And this is not a CRNA thing. This is everything thing. All, All kinds of professions are in the exact same boat. It's why usually people less than 10, 15% of people even vote in elections, all that kind of stuff. That's mm-hmm. why, right? Well, I think the answer there, you know, you used our, our bill here in Arizona. The answer there is what ultimately is the goal of becoming a CRNA if you eliminate the professional satisfaction side? You know, you like to do your job. This looks cool. I want to do it. Uh, the goal is to provide for your family, to have a good life, and to enjoy going to work, Right. That's those are the three goals, right? Those mm-hmm. that's what people that's the basic needs and the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You're going to do the three things that are going to make you happy and keep you going back. You don't want to be going to work every day saying, "I hate it here. I hate this place. I hate all these people," because eventually right. you'll quit. Right? right? I hate my job. That sort of thing. So, what the connection there is when we in Arizona changed the law to do two things, or well, three things. We Changed the law so that a physician couldn't be liable for the actions of malpractice negligence of a CRNA. Sounds very simple. Why does that matter? Then we opted out in a very close period of time. Uh, and then, you know, we basically, uh, by opting out, eliminated the idea that someone was supervising you in any kind of way uh, that could 
suggest liability, even though it didn't really exist. What did that do for the average CRNA in Arizona? Well, I can tell you that the reason wages are going up and jobs have opened up significantly are all related to advocacy and those bills. When I left Arizona to go to anesthesia school, like 15 or whatever it was years ago, uh, there were CRNAs working at the VA hospital, county, maybe some plastic surgeries offices, and that was about it. And when I mm-hmm. came back, it had exploded. You sure. know? And then, when, and why did it explode? Because CRNAs were now being used by one particular group, um, Arizona Heart Anesthesia, as essentially independent practitioners. And so the scope of practice expanded right there, right? By doing that, people enjoyed their job more, they got paid more, and they didn't hate common work. So, so and, and that, was an, those things, that was an interprofessional practice. There was physicians too. I don't know there was physicians it. too. Yeah, it was a yeah. collaborative practice, except for you worked independently in your own room. So, yeah. you know, but there were, it was mixed. It didn't really matter, you know, and everyone was very collegiate because when, when control, there's no control implied like that, then real relationships happen, you know, and, and I think that's how you, and a lot of those physicians that you and I are very close to all come from that practice. And so I think that um, that change and then the advocacy that happened with the bill, all of those things in opt out that opened up the practice in Arizona to CRNAs having better practices in autonomous, collaborative, independent practices across the state. It's exploded in the last five years for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that autonomy, you know, my whole doctoral project was on, you know, job satisfaction and practice models in Arizona. That autonomy leads directly to satisfaction for all the research. And autonomy also leads to higher salary. So not only are you paid better, but you you are more satisfied in the one place you are only second to sleeping, right? You're at work more than anything else than sleeping. That's it. And so when you add all those things together, that impacts the average CRNA, whether they're involved or not. The key here is, is they wouldn't be where they were if not for those people being involved and what should encourage them to get involved in any way in professional citizenship, whether it's just being a member, donating to the political action committee, getting on a committee that they think would be cool, the social media committee, whatever, um, showing up to lobby days you know, all that kind of stuff Yeah, is the, is the maintenance and further expansion of, of those things. And by the way, they're not just good. Yeah. By the way, they're not just good for CRNAs. They're good for patients. They're good for the anesthesiology service industry. They're good for the economy. And so Mm -hmm. ultimately more patients get treated, access to care is expanded. It's more cost-effective everyone's happy. CRNAs and physicians are working together, but not necessarily in some sort of a hierarchy of, uh, you know, with this weird dictatorship type of power that it gets eliminated in those models. And everybody is happier because everyone's getting paid. Everyone's doing a great job. Everyone's working to the full scope of practice and patients are getting treated in greater numbers than ever before. And yeah, so grandma gets it's a, lot for a lot faster. Yep. Um, it's good for everyone. You've been at this kind of work, whether it's uh, your professional life, your, uh, and you know, I didn't even mention earlier that, you know, you're an assistant program director at National University. So you've been doing high level work for a really long time. How do you maintain the edge to do that kind of work at this kind of level 
over the long term, right? Over the past decade plus, how do you maintain that edge? Well, I mean, I think that ultimately seeing the results or the, the of your work, the fruits of your labor, it begets more investment. So when you know when you're fighting for something that you really believe in and you want to be good, whether it's me training our nurse anesthesia residents and teaching them to be capable of working in any practice model and then watching them go out and do awesome in their first jobs, or whether it's, you know, fighting for uh, elimination in Arizona of, you know, liability for, for physicians for anything a CRNA does and being involved in that process so that physicians don't have to worry that they're liable for the actions of a CRNA or that, or if it's opt out that eliminates a perceptual barrier to expand practice, when you achieve that and you win that thing, whatever it is, you successfully achieve that goal, it is it is an endorphin rush and exciting because you know that things are moving forward to the benefit of everyone. And ultimately, that's what keeps you going, right? It's it's that it's that continue and the people around you, because you're none of this is done in a silo. Like, you know, I'm one one hundredth of anything I've ever done. And so all these people involved, you become very close and it becomes a synergistic team of people and people join over time because they're excited to be part of a winning team. And uh, when that happens, you know, you develop really tight relationships. And when you mm-hmm. feel like, oh, I'm just, this is just so much. I'm so tired of this. I'm sick of this BS and da 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 There's someone there in that team that lifts you back up and gets you back in the game. And ultimately, um, I think that's why you can function at this high. Level. Not everyone has the time for that, but they don't all have to. Just everyone has to want to be involved in some way, be a good professional citizen in some way be a member, donate to the PAC, join a committee. Maybe you'll run for a board at an estate association, or maybe you'll just be involved, you know, on the periphery as much as you can. All of those things are important, you know? So when you see, like, I mean, when I came back to Arizona and there was like seven people sitting in a bar talking about the board, that was the board. And now it's like a group of probably 50 to 75 people pretty intensely involved. It is very um, professionally rewarding to yeah. see that happen. And the only reason that those people are professionally involved is because of the mentorship by the previous group of people and and the success of the previous group of people um, that gets them excited and draws them in. Yeah. And I think that casts cast the vision down to the next generation, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to learn how to hand it over, right? And not try to control it. That's right. another thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's a, that's a whole other subject. Mike, that... That is great. That's that's the last question. You and I could talk for hours about a variety of different (laughs) topics. And uh, this is anesthesia deconstructed or else we could dive into really controversial issues. That's for another podcast. Maybe that's in the 2030s. Thanks for being on, man. We're going to leave it right there. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thank you all for turning into Anesthesia Deconstructed. I am your host, Joe Rodriguez, alongside Mike McKinnon. Thanks to our producer, Adkins Media. If you enjoyed our conversation today, we truly appreciate if you could leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That feedback helps us bring more value to our listeners. And if you have any questions, topics you'd like us to delve into, or direct feedback on an episode, don't hesitate to send us an email or direct message on Instagram or Facebook. 
Onward, friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>